Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It is late afternoon on Saturday, the 16th of July today. And if I was overwhelmed by the amount of activity of the new government in just its first few weeks, well, in the month that's followed has threatened to explode my brain and bring me to a breaking point. And I apologise for the unusual delay between episodes. It's just been a busy time for us here too. The noble events from the past month include the Prime Minister's visit to Europe for the NATO summit, to which he added a visit to Kiev to meet with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Next, we have two speeches each from the Foreign Minister in Malaysia and Singapore and from the Defence Minister in India and Washington, D.C., as well as an ice-breaking meeting between our Foreign Minister and her PRC counterpart in Singapore. We also have a lot of action in the Pacific, in particular a critical meeting of the Pacific Islands Forum from this past week in Fiji. And we cannot forget the annual Lowy Poll, which came out last month too. But Alan, before we get to these details and specifics, I thought we ought to start with a big picture assessment. Last episode, I asked you to react to the first two weeks of the new government. But now we have a government that's approaching two months in office, And we're seeing more and more, I think, what its foreign policy looks like. But, of course, coming together much faster than normal. So if we were to build a model of the making of Australian foreign policy, what could we learn from the past few months? And how would this particular case study stand out? Well, back to your brain explosion first. You're right about the speed. As everyone's been observing now, the PM, Foreign Minister, Defence Minister, loads of others as well, have been on the road pretty much non-stop. The great advantage of foreign policy for a national government in Australia is that it doesn't need to be negotiated with the states and it mostly requires no legislation to put it into effect. So you can get down to it very quickly. The downside, of course, is that landmines await the unprepared, inexperienced and incautious across the landscape. Anyway, you asked about what we can learn as a model for foreign policy from this activity. I guess these early weeks give us an opportunity to test the proposition that the central goals of Australian foreign policy continue to be largely bipartisan, revolving, as they have for these past 70 years, around support for the US alliance, engagement with the region around us, and recognition of the importance of the rules-based order to a middle power like us. Now, you'd certainly say that that's been confirmed. It's what the Labor Party said during the election campaign, and it's what it has delivered since. Foreign policy manifests itself initially through the things the government does. These are the the symbolic markers of where its priorities lie. So we saw the PM make Indonesia the destination of his first bilateral overseas visit, and the foreign minister is now back from visit number three to the South Pacific. So they've covered engagement with the region there. Uh, Continuity on... Support for the alliance has been signified through the PM's attendance at the Tokyo Quad Summit and at the NATO meeting. And the visit to Ukraine has provided plenty of opportunities to underline the importance of what happens when states like Russia fail to follow the rules-based order. Australia's offer to host an international climate change meeting on the South Pacific is another sign of a particularly Labor Party emphasis on multilateralism. As we discussed last time, at first the government kept its statements very general and mostly about national identity, role of Indigenous Australians, nature of our multicultural society, plus a little bit of climate change. Words like listening and respectfully have come up again and again in language from the PM and his ministers in order to signal 
partnership and due modesty. Now, as we'll discuss later, they've since opened up on their foreign policy narrative a bit in a series of speeches. Finally, on the role that symbols play in foreign policy, it was really significant that we and our Pacific neighbours could see photos of the PM watching the really great, by the way, third state of origin rugby league game between Queensland and New South Wales, sitting there with his Pacific colleagues watching TV. Now try that, Xi Jinping. And and similarly with the sort of the scenes of Penny Wong uh, walking around the marketplaces and eating noodles in Kota Kinabalu. So, look, look, I know that's not quite modelly <laughs> enough for you, Karen. So why don't you take over? No, that's, that's very helpful, Alan. But as a practical matter in preparation for this episode, I downloaded, I think, over 30,000 words of just speeches and transcripts from the PM, the Foreign Minister and the Defence Minister just from these past four weeks. And I've had to read them quite closely, right? And... To me, Mm. there's a bit of a contrast there with the previous government where, in my experience at least, I gleaned relatively less from careful study of transcripts and typically found the most insightful source being speeches from the Prime Minister himself. So this Mm. indeed caused me to start to speculate about alternative models of foreign minister, at least. Could I build a Maurice Payne model and contrast it with a (laughs) Penny Wong model, foreign minister and foreign policy? And what would be the differences if I did? Now, importantly, I start from an impression, and that impression is that Payne was a more reserved, and I think in her public statements, seemed to operate within a tighter set of constraints compared to her successor. But the benefit of kind of trying to formalise this in some way in a model is is it forces you to come up with precise concepts and concrete measurements to see if your intuition actually fits the data. So I gave it some thought of how would you populate a model and I came up with five variables to start with. The first is the Prime Minister's interest in leading on foreign policy, which you'd measure, of course, by the volume of their engagement and the extent to which the PM allows themselves to be drawn into foreign policy discussions. The second would be the relationship between the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister, both on a personal level and I guess also each as political standing within the party. Now, this would be hard to measure objectively. You'd have to rely on accounts from insiders for that one. The third would be the balance between domestic logics and foreign logics in public messaging. And one possible measure here would be the number of engagements with Australian media versus press conferences and doorstop interviews conducted overseas. Fourth, you have the personality of the ministers themselves. And without question, Wong and Payne are are very different people. Now, how could you formalise those differences? Objectively, that would be hard to do, but you would need to try. And finally, of course, you've got the government's assessment of the national interest and the policy priorities that follow from that. And here, of course, you would look to policy documents and the content of speeches and other public statements, as well as where ministers travel overseas and with whom they meet and speak. Now, I'm not going to try to formalise a comparison now. Maybe an enterprising student or researcher could, could do some research onto this. But let me mention two data points that caught my eye when I was looking at this a few days ago. So I looked at the the archive of Senator Payne's transcripts and speeches from the entire year of 2021, which are still available on on the internet, and I compared that or contrasted that with Senator Wong's first seven weeks in the job. Now, if we look across 2021, on five occasions, um, Maurice Payne conducted what is labelled as a doorstop interview overseas across that entire 12-month period. Already in her first seven weeks, uh, Penny Wong has done 12. Now, if I counted correctly, though, across 2021, Maurice Payne did, I think, 53 interviews with Australian media. And that's where, if if you click on the website, the title of the interview gives the name of the radio program or the TV program or the person who interviewed her in the Australian context. In contrast, in her first seven weeks, Penny Wong has done just two, and that's the same number of appearances she's made in New Zealand media, which is quite curious. So food for thought there. Now, 
Alan, if that's even remotely correct as a model or useful as a model, what's interesting about those five categories is that the first four of them don't have anything to do with substance, yet they could matter quite a lot in how foreign policy is conducted. So do you have any reaction to any of this? Very interesting. Look, first, you need to account for COVID in the sort of pain overseas visits and stuff. Though I have to say that I did a similar exercise comparing pain with Julie Bishop for my recently published second edition of a book called Fear of Abandonment, which I might have mentioned once or twice before. (laughs) Anyway, the same exact comparison. So I think, uh, you know, COVID was a factor, but not a determining factor. It's the substance that matters, obviously, in the only important way where whether the country's foreign policy effectively advances its interests and protects its values. The first four variables that you listed are going to have an impact on that effectiveness, but how they do that will never be the same because they're going to depend on the particular circumstances and the human agents involved. But thinking about what you said, one thing that does matter and is measurable is the unity and coherence of the policy messaging coming out of the government as a whole. And that was a problem at times for the last government, and this one so far has spoken with an impressively unified voice. Okay, well, let's move on. Last month, the Prime Minister travelled to Europe for what was described as the most important NATO summit in decades, given the context of the Russian invasion. Also invited from our region were the leaders of Japan, South Korea and New Zealand. Alan, on one level, it's easy to understand why Prime Minister Albanese would go because he was invited and why wouldn't you want FaceTime with other world leaders? But can we be more specific? What would you imagine his objectives would have been in attending? How much of this would have been about Australia in NATO's region versus the NATO countries in Australia's region? That's a good way of putting it. From the government's perspective, I suspect the former rather than the latter. That is, he went more because of Ukraine and Australia's supporting role there than because of any expectation uh, about NATO's future role in the Indo-Pacific. NATO's been searching for a role since the end of the Cold War. We saw it try the Afghanistan conflict on for size. But now it's rediscovered the primacy of the Russian threat. It's going to have less time for or interest in out-of-area operations, whatever some officials or commentators might suggest from time to time. I agree, and you can see that from his public messaging. To me, the most notable theme coming out of Albanese's four doorstop interviews in Spain and a press conference in Paris was a focus on the consequences of Russia's invasion for the rules-based order. He said the Russian invasion had, quote, broken international law and that this was a struggle around whether the rules-based order would continue to apply and, quote, whether the UN Charter means something, end quote. So to a lesser extent, he also mentioned democracy and democratic values and the fact that NATO is a democratic alliance. But my sense was this was far less of an emphasis and and contrasted, I think, with the almost Manichaean way the previous government spoke about the invasion, as we've discussed previously. Meanwhile, on China, Albanese was really not, I would say, that focused on, on, on the Chinese Um, behaviour in this visit and what they're doing in our region, though he did use the adjective aggressive at one point, and he has used that adjective um, in other contexts. But the stronger emphasis for him was on the China-Russia relationship, and I think that would have been, of course, to pressure Beijing to change its position on that conflict. Now, in addition to the NATO summit, of course, the Prime Minister's trip was notable for a seemingly successful bilateral visit with uh, his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron, And, of course, his visit to Kiev, which, of course, was not without some physical risk. So rolling all that together, Alan, recognising that Australia is a marginal player at best in Europe, would you say the trip was a success? 
Oh, yes. The visit was a success. Politics is a people business and knowing your interlocutors is vital to diplomatic tactics. So this was a very good way of getting to know European leaders and catching up with some of the Asians for a second time. The meeting with Macron was obviously a good thing because France is important to Australia. Arguably, I think it's more important than Great Britain or NATO in the contributions it can make in this part of the world. The visit to Kiev was largely symbolism, but as I said before, that matters and it was good for the cause and useful for him to get a sense of the war at first hand. Sure. Well, let's move to our region then. And as I foreshadowed, both the Foreign Minister and Defence Minister have been travelling a lot. Penny Wong travelled to Vietnam and Malaysia in late June, giving a speech in Kuala Lumpur that we'll discuss. A week later, in early July, she travelled to Singapore to give another major speech and then on to Indonesia for the G20 Foreign Ministers meeting in Bali. This past week, she's, of course, been in Fiji with the Prime Minister for the Pacific Islands Forum. Alan, we've got two major speeches and a significant meeting with her Chinese counterpart in Bali. So let's take each one by one, starting with her speech in KL. Tell us what you made of that. It was a very personal speech, beginning with her own childhood memories of Malaysia, but she ended up speaking about Australia and the sort of society we have created. No Australian political leader before her could have given the same sort of address and her presence itself was the most powerful signal of the sort of changes Australia is going through. Yes, absolutely. I didn't know the specifics of her personal story, and it's striking how much it mirrors my own. My father was born in Singapore of tier two descent, and he came to Melbourne to study engineering, whereas her father went to Adelaide to study architecture, uh, was. And both met Australian women, and in my case, uh, my mother is from country Victoria. Unlike Wong's family, mine stayed in Melbourne, though we remain close with our family in Singapore. So when she said the human ties of family, business, education and tourism are stronger than those of geography, my story, just like hers, is testament to that truth. So I'm really pleased that it's being utilised as an asset in our diplomacy, especially when she concluded, quote, My Malaysian heritage is one of 270 ancestries now represented in Australia. Half of the Australian population was born overseas or has a parent who was born overseas. Australia will be reflecting this rich character back to the world so the world can see itself in Australia, end quote. I think that's a lovely turn of phrase. And Alan, you've often talked of the need for Australia to utilise the tool of persuasion more in our foreign policy. Well, one can only be persuasive if one is perceived as credible. And I think an important source of credibility is being seen to share common interests, backgrounds or values. And so I think this speech highlights the government's strategy of trying to locate itself as being authentically of the region, you know, not just geographically located within it. Now, this brings me then to her speech in Singapore, delivered at the IISS, where she gets into more detail on these strategic questions. So what were your takeaways from that speech, Alan? That was really fascinating. Darren, I didn't know those parallels between you and, uh, and Senator Wong either. The speech in Singapore was to a very different audience. The International Institute for Strategic Studies, home of the Shangri-La Dialogue, and a sophisticated and maybe one could say slightly cynical audience (laughs) of academics and diplomats and officials and think tankers who've heard all this before. But from watching the YouTube video and from comments I've heard since, I think it was genuinely well received. It was thoughtful, carefully crafted, well delivered. And in addition, she handled the questions afterwards very skillfully. The central theme was ASEAN's centrality, but in a wider sense than the way we usually use that. She talked about the way Southeast Asia is central to Australia, and her message was that the region was important in its own right for reasons of geography, economics, history, 
our emerging society, as we were just talking about, and that we do not frame our approach to this part of the world simply through the dynamics of great power competition. Yes, for me, the two key phrases in the ASEAN segment of the speech were, first, quote, ASEAN centrality means we, and by we she means Australia, we will always think about our security in the context of your security. Second, she said, ASEAN embeds the regional interest as part of the national interests of each member. Now, I think these two quotes are important for a couple of reasons. First, I think it's really a more sophisticated acknowledgement of the logic of ASEAN and why it serves the interests of its members and also of Australia than you typically get from non-ASEAN leaders, where too often you get that centrality bromide, but little more. And I think that helps build her credibility. But also, I think, very subtly, it might also be a nudge to the ASEAN states by reminding them of why they are stronger together, why they Mm. share such common interests, and why those interests, including a stable regional order, are best protected through the ASEAN mechanism or with ASEAN at the centre of that order. And we'll come back to this question when when we get to the Pacific Islands Forum. But one of the major threats to the Southeast Asian regional order would be the weakening of ASEAN, which could happen if one or more of its members decided that its interests were better served outside of that grouping. And don't forget the context, right? ASEAN is a group of states with heterogeneous interests. You've got a natural divide between the continental states and the littoral states. You've got individual states with very different postures vis-a-vis the two major powers, the US and China. So it's not a straightforward challenge to keep such a grouping together. And I expect the pressure is only going to increase as geopolitical competition increases. But I've got three more points. First, I liked how she framed the Ukraine issue through local issues, primarily food security, and the principle that big countries should not be able to invade and subjugate small countries. I like that framing, as we've discussed before, Alan, much more than a democracy versus autocracy framing. Second, I'm very pleased that my favourite Paul Keating speech from 2013, which we've discussed before, was quoted by the Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles in Singapore previously, got yet another run here, quoted by Penny Wong, on the need for China to accept restraints on its power as a key to a durable order. But she did a very nice thing here by juxtaposing Keating's language with that from the Singaporean Prime Minister, Lee Hsien Lung, about China needing to wield its power with restraint and legitimacy in order to grow its influence. So restraint here is the pathway to reassurance, which was the theme of Miles' earlier speech. And third, I really liked how she stressed that the region itself has agency that Southeast Asian states must work towards creating that strategic equilibrium, uh, which is a a phrase from Kevin Wright, if I remember correctly, to build the order that it wants. The Australian government has emphasised that it wants to listen, but at some level, listening only works if the speaker has something to say, a concrete vision that Australia can work with, can support and can build upon. And that requires a more confident ASEAN. So I endorse efforts to promote that confidence. Now, Alan, to wrap up her travels in Southeast Asia, we've got to finish with her bilateral meeting with her Chinese counterpart, Wang Yi, in Bali, which, of course, was the first between foreign ministers of Australia and China in over three years. Now, Wang opted to use the word stabilise to describe Australia's objectives for the bilateral relationship. And otherwise, her description and DFAT's description of what transpired at the meeting was very brief. What made news was the Chinese Foreign Ministry's readout, which did two notable things. First, it appeared to blame the deterioration in relations on the former government, which insisted, in their words, on treating China as a rival and a threat. Second, there were four items listed, shall we call them objectives perhaps, from the Chinese side that it hoped to realise. And these were, one that Australia treat China as a partner, not an adversary. Two, that both adhere to a path of seeking common ground while reserving differences. Three, not to target or be controlled by third parties. And four, 
to build a positive and pragmatic foundation for public opinion. Now, these were reported in the Australian media as demands. Note that I use the word objectives because talking with some Chinese-speaking colleagues in the original Chinese language, that is a, a better word or even points rather than demands is a better word to use. Now, unfortunately, the story then took one more twist because this past Monday, the Prime Minister was asked about this, this meeting and these four items. So I'll quote the transcript. Journalist, on China, they've come out on the weekend and given a list of demands to improve Beijing-Canberra relations. What is your response to the demands? Prime Minister, look, Australia doesn't respond to demands. We respond to our own national interest. I'll say this, we will cooperate with China where we can. I want to build good relations with all countries, but we will stand up for Australia's interests when me must, end quote. And of course, then this led to the headline, Prime Minister to China, Australia doesn't respond to demands. <sighs> Alan, I want your take, but can I start by saying that when asked a question like that, which uses the word demands twice, there is no way the Prime Minister is going to say, well, actually, I dispute the premise of your question. If you look at the original Chinese used by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they weren't actually demands, but they were, and so on and so forth. So, well, Kevin Rudd would have said that, of course. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Kevin Rudd could well have done that with authority, given he speaks Chinese. But, Alan, can you talk us through all this, please? Yeah, sure. Look, the government must be irritated by some of the responses they've had from journalists. Not, of course, the journalists who listen to this podcast, Darren. I exempt them entirely. <laughs> but for many of the rest of them, there's only one story in foreign policy, and that's China. And of course, it's a big story. You and I have spent enough time talking about it to appreciate that. But the problem is that the monomaniacal media focus on Beijing doesn't leave space for much else, and you do get sick of it. The media frames a story and then demands a response to its framing. So even when Penny Wong in Singapore delivers a speech specifically to say that the new Australian government is not going to determine its policy towards Southeast Asia only in terms of China and great power relations, the comments and, and questions in the media afterwards almost entirely about China. And, and your point about the demands is really good. It's just another reminder of the importance of understanding the language of your interlocutors and what they intend to convey through their messaging. The former Australian Consul General in Hong Kong, Jocelyn Che, had an excellent examination of this, which we can link to in the show notes. And look, just to add, Darren, this works the other way too. I mean, if, if Beijing wants its own diplomacy to be more effective, it needs to think in terms of how Australians will read and understand the statements that it makes as well. Yeah, I entirely agree with that last point, Alan, but I'll get to that in a moment. First up, can I say that I really like the use of the verb stabilise from the foreign minister to describe Australia's near-term objectives vis-a-vis -vis China. I think it's a much more effective word, an accurate word than reset, which is one that was bandied around a lot in commentary, because you cannot have a reset when there are such clear policy differences and clear continuity in Australia's interests with the new government, as they have emphasised repeatedly such as, for example, the ongoing coercive barriers um, and Australians in Chinese prisons for reasons that we don't see as legitimate. On the Australian media, look, I'm assuming their response in this episode would be that they relied on the English translation um, of the readout provided by the Chinese foreign ministry itself. So it's very messy. And I think I'd prefer to sidestep that and focus on that last point you made, Alan. And I think that the Chinese officials have made at least three separate errors here. The first was I just didn't think it was the right move to make it partisan and, and blame the previous government. Sooner or later, a conservative government is going to return to office and you don't want to be on the record so explicitly as being uniquely hostile to them because you're going to have to deal with them again. But also in the present moment, you force or you risk forcing the other side, the current government, to be even more cautious in working with you if it's seen as a partisan thing. If, if, if the Chinese side is seen as taking sides, that's going to make the current government very reluctant, 
even more reluctant, I would say, to sort of to make overtures. Now, unfortunately, Chinese diplomacy in other countries does have a bit of a record on this. I don't know if partisan is the right word, but from my studies of their foreign policy, they do have a record of, of leaning more towards one side of politics than the other in, in a number of different countries, and it has caused them problems in the past. Second, these, these four items, these four objectives, four demands, whatever language we're going to call them, they're quite vague. You know, they're expressed in, in vague language. It's very hard to measure success. What are the objective and concrete benchmarks that we could point to? And because they're so vague, they it inevitably means that China and China alone gets to decide whether they've been met. And that's not the basis for stabilising relations, I don't think. And third, look, if we assume that they were intended to be objectives rather than demands... As you said, Alan, there is still, I think, a lack of sensitivity towards domestic politics here in Australia. We know Chinese diplomats like giving lists. Multiple lists have been given to the US too, so we're not alone in that front. But if your goal is to, quote, build a positive and pragmatic foundation for public opinion, which is the language they used, you've got to be so careful here. And, and I really think you want to be very hesitant before expressing any objectives or requests or demands that purport or might be interpreted as telling someone else what to do. Certainly not publicly, because you risk backing up the other side into a corner and you risk being misunderstood, right? Sometimes diplomacy does require one to be vague, but sometimes it needs to be very, you need to be very clear and not run the risk that you will be misunderstood by the other side. And I think Beijing needs to understand that Albanese gave the only question to that answer that he could possibly give given the framing that was provided to him. Anyway, Alan, let's move on. We've got two speeches now from the Defence Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles, one given in India and the other in the United States. I thought maybe I might go first here and offer a few observations. All yours, Darren. <laughs> well, in the India speech, the key passage was this, quote, the capabilities top-tier militaries will need to field depend on technologies, supply chains and doctrine that no nation can develop on its own. Rather, it's those countries that can best pool their resources and combine their strengths that will have the decisive competitive advantage. But that kind of cooperation is rare because it depends not just on strategic alignment, it depends also on trust. Trust between leaders and officials, but more fundamentally, institutional trust between nations. It is those countries with which we share the principles and institutions of representative government, democracy and the rule of law, that Australia will work with most closely. End quote. Now, I found this particularly interesting because it drew a causal link. You know, it basically said modern battlefield strength is a function of technology and supply chains. That requires cooperation, but cooperation is rare. And when cooperation happens, it comes from trust. And for Australia, trust is sourced in democracy and the rule of law. In other words, your national security, India, in part depends upon you upholding democracy and the rule of law. That's how I interpret it anyway, and I think it's a very elegant way of delivering a delicate message. Turning to Miles' speech in Washington, D.C., again, I want to quote two segments here that I liked very much. First, the Alliance Project speaks to something I've always felt realists have never quite understood, that the treaty that codifies our alliance is less a piece of paper than it is a network of people, politicians, policy officers, intelligence officials and soldiers, professionals who grow up working together, serve in each other's institutions, deploy to combat zones and come to each other's aid, professionals whose commitment to each other depend less on a treaty's text than on a set of shared convictions. The other quote was, it is worth considering where Europe would be today without the deterrent inherent in NATO's collective security. And yet the return of multipolarity has brought with it the argument that alliances are out of date. Some say that alliances are Cold War relics unsuited to contemporary statecraft, that they lead to irrational decision-making. 
where smaller states ignore their own interests in deference to the interests of the larger partner. To be honest, that sounds less like alliances that we know and more like the regional order of a great power seeking to shape the world around it, where harmony depends on acceptance of a regional hierarchy, where access to favourable trade and investment depends on voluntary limits to political sovereignty. In such circumstances, critics of alliances need to answer why countries like Australia would be better served going it alone, why doing so would not in fact constrain national sovereignty rather than enhance it, end quote. Now, Alan, the reason I love these passages, and really kudos to whoever wrote them, is the, in the first case, I think it was important to celebrate and strengthen the alliance with some of mm. its most important advocates in the US system, being you know, defence officials and military personnel. The second extract I liked because it was a clear rebuttal to the Chinese argument that US alliance networks represent this outdated Cold War mentality by pointing out that the Chinese model actually seems to resemble deference to the larger partner that they would complain about and is actually the kind of model that would constrain Australia's sovereignty. And you contrast that with the deep personal ties reflected in the Australia-US alliance and you know, the values that we share, which the Defence Minister went on to say actually empower Australia rather than constrain it. So, Alan, any comment from you on that or on the two speeches generally? Uh, okay. Well, look, you've given me pause to think here because I thought the India speech was very good for the reasons you've outlined. But I do have to confess that my first reaction to the Washington speech was a little more jaded than yours. I, I thought to myself... Okay, here is the first speech every Australian Defence Minister in living memory has made in Washington. We love you, you love us, we fight together. And because it's a Labor Defence Minister, we'll begin with John Curtin and the turn to <laughs> America. So anyway, since I heard your reaction, I've gone back and read it a second time and I can see there might be a bit more to it and at least we were spared a hundred years of mateship and beside you in every battle since uh, Hummel in the First World War. But it certainly avoids any comments on the situation in the United States itself. That's probably inevitable. I don't sort of criticise it for that. But it does leave us in the artificial world in which everything on our side of the international equation is rosy and eternal. Now, do you think there's something to be made out of the minister's use of the phrase that you quoted, the return of multipolarity? Maybe I've missed it, but I just don't recall that formulation being used before by an Australian minister. I don't recall hearing it either, but I do see some promise on it. And it's quite interesting because Beijing has long promoted the idea of multipolarity, but for them, it means you know, dismantling the US-led system. Hmm. An alternative definition, however, is you have a number of independent and unafraid non-major powers who are willing to stand together or stand up for themselves to protect their own regional order, which might not be the kind of order that China has in mind. So, interesting idea. Speaking of regional orders, we'll move on to the Pacific now. I should mention first that the Kiwi Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, visited Australia a few weeks ago and gave a very interesting speech. But we're going to save that for a dedicated episode down the track. Meanwhile, we have had the Pacific Islands Forum that just wrapped up that was attended by both Australia's Prime Minister and Foreign Minister. And it's been a difficult time these past few weeks for the organisation with President Marmau of the Micronesian state Kiribati announcing the country's withdrawal from the PIF just a few days prior to the meeting. Kiribati's primary grievance appears to be the breaking of the informal agreement to have a Micronesian leader run the organisation this time around, plus a lack of consultation regarding the Suva agreement that was concluded earlier last month, which resolved the impasse between the Micronesian states and the other PIF members around the leadership question, and we'll see a Micronesian takeover in 2024. Kiribati's opposition has claimed that the decision to withdraw has been influenced by China. 
At the PIV itself, we saw the United States Vice President Kamala Harris deliver a virtual address in which she acknowledged the region had not received the attention it deserved and announced a significant step up, shall we say, of the US presence, including new diplomatic missions in Kiribati and Tonga, and a promise to deliver the first comprehensive US national strategy on the Pacific. As the summit wrapped up just yesterday, we saw that the Fijian leader had finally managed to get his Kiribatian counterpart on the phone, who apparently left the door open to rejoining the forum, which would be good news, but I haven't actually seen an outcome document yet. Alan, I was doing some teaching a few weeks ago and the students were considering future scenarios three to five years out. And I put it to them to consider how the fracturing of a regional organisation like the PIF, or indeed ASEAN, could be prevented or managed if it occurred. Because if it's true that the achievement of a strategic equilibrium and the minimising the impacts of major power rivalry require ASEAN centrality, require PIF centrality, then the integrity and the functionality of these bodies is arguably the most important pillar of the regional order. So, Alan, I mean, how worried are you about the trajectory here and what can Australia do to support the PIF and defend the Pacific regional order? Oh, look, do exactly what we're doing, Darren. Understand that it's not all about us and that the sovereign states of the South Pacific Forum have their own voices and their own interests. Understand that decision-making processes in the South Pacific are different from ours and be prepared to sit and talk and talk and, if necessary, talk some more. Answers are more likely to come from the smaller members, not from us, but we've got to be prepared along with New Zealand to know when and how to offer support. But full marks so far, I think, to what the government's done. Yeah, to that I would just add not to take the regional order for granted. You cannot assume that the PIF and the Pacific Way or the ASEAN Way will simply endure no matter what. This turbulent strategic environment that we're in that we've talked about so much is inevitably putting pressure on these decades-old models of order. I think it's incumbent on defenders of these orders to understand how, other than mere inertia, their preferred model can endure and remain useful so that it can be strengthened and be buttressed against these pressures. All right, Alan, let's turn for our final item to the Lowy poll, with the 2022 edition being released last month. Now, the poll has become an absolutely indispensable resource for Australian foreign policy, and thus our congratulations to friend of the podcast, Natasha Kassam, and her team for once again delivering Lowy's flagship product at such a high quality. With the proviso that really all of our listeners should hop onto the poll's website and explore it for themselves, Alan, what for you were the major highlights? Uh, look, I just want to say, and this is too self-approving, but uh, one of the first proposals I, I made to Frank Lowy when I went to the Lowy Institute as the inaugural executive director was that we should spend some of the Institute's money on an annual opinion poll asking Australians for their views on international matters. It had long been a matter of deep irritation to me that there was no reliable way over time of tracking how Australians thought about many critical international issues and, just as importantly, how these views changed over time. Our inspiration in those early years was the fine work done over many years by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and more recently the Pew Research Centre. And in fact, we were able to draw on some of their well-tested methodology and questions. We now have, as you were saying, 18 years worth of data. It's an extraordinary national resource and the Lowy Institute continues to invest in the poll and in the interactive website, which makes it so incredibly easy to, to access. So join you in kudos to, to Natasha and the others. A lot has been written and said about this year's increasingly negative views on China, but I wanted to just note a couple of other things. First, the continuing support among Australians for free trade and globalisation. This is striking. 80% of Australians think free trade is good for their own standard of living, compared with only 16% who think it's not. Now, I haven't checked, but I, I strongly suspect that this is very different from the results we would find in some other developed economies. 
Secondly, as a veteran of the last period of tense Australia-France relations following the French nuclear tests in the Pacific in the, in the early 1990s, the shifting Australian views on nuclear issues really surprises me. A majority of Australians support removing the ban on nuclear power and the 70% of, uh, of respondents who support the acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines are joined by an astonishing, to me, 36% of Australians who now say they are strongly or somewhat in favour of the acquisition of nuclear weapons by Australia. So this suggests to me anyway that an enormous change has gone on somewhere in the public mood. My overall takeaways were that Australians are feeling less secure but more globalist in their orientation, which is actually quite reassuring and along that theme of being supportive of globalisation and free trade. In the face of growing fear, we're choosing openness, not closure, and that's good. In that vein, I note that 68% agree that Australia's openness to people from all over the world is essential to who we are as a nation which is up from 53% in 2018. When asked how immigration levels should change relative to pre-COVID levels, 21% say increase, 46% say keep the same, while 33% say decrease. So that's only a minority calling for decreasing migration, which is also a significant shift. Only 34% want to decrease foreign aid, down from almost half the population, which was 47% in 2019, while in a new question, 82% support aid to the Pacific to counter Chinese influence, with even more supporting aid for development, vaccines and disaster relief purposes. So all consistent with the themes you outlined, Alan. Okay, well, actually, before we get to our very final segment, we probably should reflect briefly, Alan, on the life of the former Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, who, as everyone will know, was horrifically assassinated last week. It seems by an individual lone wolf who had his own grievances. But do you want to have any comment on his career from the, through the lens of Australia and the world? The former Australian ambassador to Japan, Bruce Miller, who's served in Tokyo, I think, three times and speaks flawless Japanese, probably knew Abe better than any other Australian. And he wrote a very fine piece in the Australian Financial Review, which again we'll link to on the homepage. I think all I can say in addition is that while Abe was not without flaws, he was one of the most consequential Japanese leaders in modern Japanese history and a real friend of Australia. Yeah, I think it's fitting that we just have these latest Lowy poll results where Japan is seen as Australia's equal most trusted partner. Under Abe, we saw Japan, I think, visibly express a very similar set of interests to that those held by Australia and Australians and be willing to do more, increasingly so, to protect them. And that foreign project was enabled by Abe's immense political talent which brought stability to Japanese politics. And that meant a more confident Japan under his leadership, which did play its part in contributing to regional stability. So anyway, our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what do you have as we wrap up? Look, I know this has been a long podcast, but I wanted to make three quick recommendations. First, Hugh White's new quarterly essay, Sleepwalk to War, Australia's Unthinking Alliance with America. Like all Hughes' books and articles over the past 12 years, he takes a sharp, clear look at Australia's defence plans and strategies, especially this time the alliance with the United States, and finds us wanting. Now, it's not necessary to agree with Hugh, but it is necessary to read him because he challenges the conventional wisdom in Australia and forces the reader to examine the foundations of their own assumptions in order to make sure they can stand up to Hughes' arguments. Secondly, we talked in our last broadcast about the PM speech in Indonesia about the centuries-old links between the Muslim traders of Makassar and the Yolngu people of Arnhem Land. 
One of our listeners who's worked extensively in Northern Australia drew my attention to a breathtakingly lovely animated version of Geoffrey Gurumal's song, Baini, which draws on local myths of creatures who come with copper skins and are involved in collecting and curing tripang. Gurumal sings it with Sarah Blasco, and the animation is by Emily Vines. It's just beautiful. Watch it. It's also on our show page. And finally, I want to mention, because it's so damn impressive, the launch of the Youth National Security Strategy, which I attended a couple of weeks ago. This comes complete with an interactive website. It's a self-generated bottom-up project convened by Dom Dwyer and Tom Smethurst, who thought about organised and delivered a group of 42 young people from all around the country to agree on and set out what an Australian national security strategy should be from the perspective of those whose lives have mostly or entirely spanned the 21st century. Do have a look. Thanks, Alan. For those of you who have made it to the end of this very long episode, I apologise that my recommendation is pure self-promotion today. There's a never-ending debate in international relations about the extent to which scholars can do policy-relevant work that is also presented in a way that will get it accepted in the very best academic journals. In that context, I'm very proud to say that my latest academic paper has been published, co-authored with Victor Ferguson, my longtime PhD student collaborator, and our new friend and colleague, Scott Waldron, who is an agricultural economist at the University of Queensland. In the paper, we look at how Australian exporters in nine industries, two minerals and seven from agriculture, responded to the loss of the Chinese market occasioned by Beijing's coercive campaign starting in May of 2020. Our goal was to understand the different features of the individual industries and markets that made them more or less able to adjust to this kind of shock in order to provide insight into how Australia and other countries can build long-term resilience to economic coercion. We released a preliminary working paper last October and received great interest from government, and now the formal academic paper has come out in the Review of International Political Economy and can be read and downloaded by anyone because it's open access. So if you're interested in what I do when not podcasting, this is a good place to start. On that note, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Annabelle Howard for audio editing today and thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.